everybody, and welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a multimedia education project based on the popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between, in particular the ongoing pandemonium, so to speak. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. And today is a fantastic example of such a subject. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Locals, Substack, and Rumble to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I am a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor and human being. Coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. And as always, I am joined by the aforementioned spheroidical earther himself, Matthew Crawford is my co-host. How are you, Matthew? I'm good, thanks. Um, what have you been up to so far this morning, apart from just generally trying to wake up? <laughs> uh, well, I'm working on a new business, and uh, it, it is a hungry baby already. So um, I, I all, almost all of my free time outside of uh, you know my writing time for rounding the earth and and this uh, has been devoted to it lately. And so it's 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 busy, but busy in a fun way. Awesome. Well, you've you've very briefly given a, a, a first uh, introduction to generally what you're working on in our our uh, our locals exclusive uh, live stream from a couple of weeks ago. But I look forward to you being able to share even more details uh, with our community very soon. Oh, um, I'm, I'm going to keep it mum for a while. Actually, uh, uh, we're we're going to be in stealth mode for a bit. Um, but you know, before before we get started today, I just want to say this: today's topic is a good reason why we need more people helping out with the campfire wiki, hmm. because uh, today we're going to talk about a topic um, that it, there's not um, good education to it. We were talking with uh, our guest um, uh, Kim just before we started, and uh, you know, there are a lot of things in the world that people need to understand and know about in order to operate in the world. And there's no class in education or even university that's called stuff that you need to know and to, to live your daily life and to protect yourself and to, you know, to be the healthiest version of yourself that you can be. And if there were a handful of people who watch this and say, oh, well, I could take over working on a handful of, of articles about this so that there's a balanced set of information, then, then all of that would get better. But we do protect the wiki by uh, sort of having a, a sieve for the editors. Not, not anyone can just you know, log into campfire.wiki and become an editor. They have to apply to become an editor by emailing uh, the Operation Uplift team. So I would encourage people to think about that. And if you know some on about uh, Zoloft or other pharmaceutical medicines that we may talk about today, and, and think that you can help with that, it would be greatly appreciated. It may save, um, it may save some people uh, money, may save some people injury, may save some people time. Um, you know, what education does, right? That's right. And I think what we're going to find is, um, especially with the pharmaceutical companies in particular that are, uh, <clears throat> that are peppered along the history of this drug and its class of drugs, we're going to find that we're, we're, we're already doing research around it. But having an understanding of what's happened with antidepressants, with SSRIs and with Zoloft, I think will cut to the chase a lot better on some of the things we're trying to understand in terms of marketing, 
um, in terms of regulatory decision making. So without any further ado, and, and by the way, I, I see in our local chat, Vilma Betancourt has already asked on uh, asked about how to sign up. So I'm going to provide some info uh, in the various chats as we begin the conversation um, on how to work on the Campfire Wiki uh, with us. But without further ado, let's get to it. I'd like to introduce our guest for today, Kim Witzak. How are you, Kim? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Very well. well I'm just, I'm hoping I pronounced your name right. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty impressed. I didn't even tell you. Normally people ask because of that CZ, it, you know, gets people all a little, but you did a very good job with sack or like, what do you used to always say? Sack of wits. <laughs> so, well, that is self-evident. <laughs> sack of wits. I'm already, but no, I'm laughing because every time I go to a restaurant and people, and I give my name with sack, they're like, your last name and they think i say what's that so <laughs> so there's a lot of different things but yes i'm really pleased to be here with you guys today thanks for having me well how about um let's as we've already alluded to we've got a really interesting discussion uh to get into but do you want to just very quickly introduce yourself to the audience who may not yet be familiar with your work sure um well, first of all, um, as you said, my name's Kim Witzak, and I like to actually call myself the accidental advocate because I never set out to do this work that I do, the drug safety work. But sometimes um, our greatest life purposes choose us, and that's kind of how I look at my work. Uh, but I think there's, you know, I first need to tell you how I got into the work. And and um, really, it all started on August 6, 2003, um, almost 20 years ago, uh, this August, I got a call from my dad that my husband of almost 10 years, Woody, was found hanging from the rafters of our garage, dead at age 37. Woody wasn't depressed, nor did he have a history of depression or any other mental illness. He had just started his dream job with a startup company and was having trouble sleeping which is not uncommon for entrepreneurs or anybody who is in this new kind of environment of working on your own. He was waking up at three in the morning and he was a guy that always needed eight hours of sleep. So he went and saw his um, family doctor, his GP. And because, you know, Woody was one of these guys that I always said was like a Humpty Dumpty. Um, the doctors always put him back together. who's a big athlete. So, you know, whatever the doctor told him, he did. And so he went to see his doctor and was having trouble sleeping. And when he left, he was given a three-week sample pack um, of Zoloft, which is an antidepressant for insomnia, and was told that it would take the edge off and help him sleep. And, you know, when I look back at that, first of all, there's a couple of things. It was samples that automatically doubled the dose. Um, and I was out of the country there were, um, the first three weeks he was put on this drug. So I was, uh, I'm in advertising and I was on a production down in New Zealand. So I wasn't even around when Woody got put on this drug. And I will never forget when I got back um, in town and I was excited to see Woody would, um, came in the back door and he was just, you could tell he had been crying and was completely drenched through his blue dress shirt put his bag on the ground and fell to the floor. And he had his hands around his head like a vice. Kim, you gotta help me. I don't know what's happening to me. My head's outside my body. And he's just like rocking back and forth, back and forth. And I was like, uh, 
I, I had never seen this in our being together for all those years. And so we calmed him down, did yoga, yoga breathing, praying, everything just to get him like calm. And he called his doctor um, and told him what happened. And the doctor said, you got to give it four to six weeks to kick in for the drug to kick in. So every night, the next week of his life, you know, what he kept, you know, coming in and saying, what do you think about hypnosis? I'm going to beat this feeling. Everything was beat this feeling in his head, beat his feel this feeling. And, you know, I even said, well, what, you know, if your job is too stressful, quit. Like thinking I had no idea um, what, what it was. And so, you know, I look back at that time 20 years ago, um, there were no warnings. Um, there was no warning even given to Woody about, you know, be, be warned or, you know, look for if you have anything that doesn't feel right when first going on these drugs. And it was literally when I got that call from my dad, because it was my busy time of season and both of us traveled all the time. So we're used to like a traveling couple lifestyle. And we're just talking about starting a family. And so when I, um, I was out of town on another shoot. I got, that's when I got the call from my dad and I had to figure out how to get back into Minneapolis. But that night the coroner had called me and asked if Woody was on any medication. And the only medication Woody was taking was Zoloft. And she said, and it was sitting on the kitchen counter and she said she needed to take it with her. It might have something to do with his death. And it was like, what? Like, I mean, that didn't even make any sense to me, but I don't think I heard it. You know, my brother-in-law and sister and parents that were there heard at my house heard it. And then ironically, the other kind of clue um, per se is um, the front page of our newspaper, the Minneapolis Star Tribune had an article that said the UK finds link between antidepressants and suicide in teens. And so... Woody didn't leave a note. There was no note. We traveled. We always left notes for each other. There was no note on the biggest trip of his life. But these two pieces of clue, you know, clue might have been something. But I don't know if I look back. I don't know if I would have ever at the time questioned the drug when, you know, when Woody was head outside the body because it was given to him by his doctor. It was advertised and sold as safe and effective, and it was approved by the FDA. So all of those things, you know, were my old way of thinking of like, why would I, why would I think twice about the drug? But obviously since then, um, that like night that changed my trajectory of my life, um, I have a very different um, perspective and, you know, did a lot of things after that, that became really now what I call my life purpose, and that is being a drug safety advocate. And part of that, if I'm not mistaken, before we get into some of the the, the details of, of both your story and what it means in the bigger picture, am I, am I right? You just got back from a meeting with the FDA? Yes, Can I Can you did. tell us about that? Because that's part of the work you do now, right? Sure, sure. Um, so I sit on, um, well, I'm a part of a coalition um, that none of us take any money. Um, we call our the DC Patients Consumer Public Health Coalition. And we just had a meeting with the FDA commissioner last week 
um, in DC. And I have been working with the FDA since Woody's death, because I would go out there all the time and um, testify and, and really try to make it better. Um, but I'm also now a member um, on one of the FDA advisory committees, the Psychopharmologic Drugs Advisory Committee as consumer rep. So basically representing the public. And, um, and ironically, this is the same committee that when the FDA had hearings on antidepressant when it was just Prozac in 1991, when everybody took money from, um, um, the F or from drug companies that made antidepressants, the FDA already looked at this issue in 91 when it was just Prozac on the market. And so now to look at it, it's come full circle that I'm actually sitting on that committee. And so I know um, my job on that committee has real life consequences, even if I'm the only no vote and I look at safety first. Wow. Well, um, okay. Well, there's a whole bunch of ways we can start going a little deeper. Um, the first, I will volunteer that I myself have been on uh, on sertraline, which is the generic version of Zoloft, um, more or less unbroken from 2013 to today. Um, there was a brief period in 2015 where I went off and then I went back on. The reason for me was I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. Um, now, I, I admit I'm a little more skeptical of the process by which I was diagnosed. I, I have more questions uh, and, and more of a journey to go on. But the result was going on this this drug, this uh, generic version of Zoloft. Were you, you were a teenager still. I It was my first year of university. So I was 17 turning 18. Yeah. And um, and uh, thankfully, um I've, 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 well, I've survived to this point. So there's that. Um, but, uh, long story short, I am now, I'm, I'm happy to say I'm in the final stretch of, uh, of going off of the drug, uh, permanently, uh, by my choice with my doctor. So, um, I wanted to offer that first, just as to put some context for the audience that this is, it's truly a, a, a widespread, um, phenomena of uh, antidepressants in general, but also uh, specifically sertraline and, and, and Zoloft. Um, people, I think, are likely being prescribed this for entirely different reasons. As you mentioned, uh, insomnia, not being able to sleep was the uh, original source of Woody's prescription. For me, it was a depression diagnosis. But, you know, there's also the, uh, the notion that SSRIs are being used as a potential COVID treatment. So it's such a wide ranging um, uh, topic. And um, I just, yeah, I wanted to offer that as a, as a first thing. Um, Matthew, where do you want to take this first? There's a bunch of different ways we could go. Um, well, I, I'll go ahead and, and uh, since you've mentioned your own personal experience, uh, I'll go ahead and, and then add mine then. Um, I, I uh, took Zoloft for three months. Um, I think it was 2000. Yes. Uh, uh, no, no, uh, 1999, uh, 1999. And, um, <clears throat> and, you know, I, I, I look back and I just think, um, you know, that the prescription was very questionable. You know, uh, I, I feel like I went to, um, it, it, you know, I went to a psychiatrist. It was the only time I've ever been to a psychiatrist. And I was just, you know, looking for some answers. Uh, I think that, uh, I, you know, I had a very difficult family situation 
and I was in a, a city where I knew almost no one uh, working on a new job and the new job oddly didn't fit uh, sort of like the, the environment, the culture. And so, you know, I, I, I just uh, I, I didn't think I'm going to talk to someone to get a drug. But what happened was I was very quickly prescribed a drug. And looking back, I have no idea how how, you know, just uh, the information, just, you know, sitting down and talking to someone for a few minutes would make them just immediately jump to, um, you know, such a drug. But, uh, you know, my experience was the first day that I was on it, I had what I consider the only um, I, I it somebody might call it a manic episode, but I functioned at work fine. It was just that it was such a release of energy at once that um, it, it, it was kind of like being on speed, though I, I, I say that I've never been on speed. I've never taken, a, you know, something uh, more powerful than, you know, uh, caffeine or, um, you know, uh, something like that to, to, you know, pump up my energy level. But I was hyper focused. And, and part of the problem that I had at work was that it was it was very much like, uh, you know, a boring day at school where you're having to focus for 40 minutes to get to the 30 seconds that matters to you. And that was challenging to me because I, you know, I was somebody who had a different level of experience than everyone else that I was working with. And so, you know, having to focus that much through the boring parts, you know, to get to the part where you do need to focus was absolutely painful, but, you know, having this sort of like hyper manic state all day, um, it, it was, it was a very weird experience. And, but then after day one, I never experienced that again. And in fact, for three months, I had no idea what the drug was supposed to be doing for me. I couldn't tell you of any effect that it was having on me. And so I decided to just, you know, you know, stop talking to, uh, that psychiatrist. I just, I just didn't refill the prescription and I had nine months of zaps, mostly the first two months, but, um, you know, uh, fortunately, I was spending that year working out more than usual, uh, and, I, and hopefully, you know, that helped. But um, it was, you know, I, I just thought, wow, I, I wouldn't ever want to go through that withdrawal again. Even three months, that was just, it was jarring. And, you know, nobody had ever, I'd never heard of the zaps. Nobody had ever explained it to me. But, like, there was nothing about the entire experience that seemed positive at all. And, and, and looking back, it just, it made no sense. And I was over-trusting. And, you know, I, I should have done more research maybe, but I'm not even sure that I would have found what I needed doing the research. I was going to say, I can just step in really quickly because if this was 99, 2000, there were no warnings. There was nothing on these drugs. And one of the first things that we did after Woody died, because I'm like, what? Like, how'd this guy who loved life go kill himself? Like, what? And so it literally became like my goal. We, my brother-in-law and I headed out to DC. We met with members of Congress, the FDA. We actually met with the FDA and said, wouldn't you want to be investigate this? Since, because Woody, this guy who didn't have anything all of a sudden killed himself. Well, um, what we find out, what we eventually got forced and the FDA did hold um, advisory committees in 2004, black box suicide warnings did get put on these drugs um, for up to 18. And then we kept pushing because, you know, Woody was 37 and we pushed to um, for 2006, the FDA upped it to age 24, which mm -hmm. is so ridiculous. It should be all ages. And then 
in addition, one of the things that um, we had done is I had a uh, wrongful death failure to warn lawsuit against Pfizer. Oh. And, and we got all kinds of documents out that these guys knew about this well before. And so then that whole like lawsuit experience and the documents and working with my lawyers, like I knew none of this. So Matthew, you going through when you did, you didn't, you wouldn't have known anything either because there was nothing out there. And so you didn't know that the most dangerous times um, are when you first go on the drug, dosages um, change or trying to come off of them. And all three of them happened to Woody, right? Went on, doubled, and then you had the trying to get off of them and the brain zaps. So um, you didn't know it. I And actually, um, to this day, like when I look at some of the documents, so remember I was telling you that head outside the body? Um, one of the documents that Pfizer had was written by um, – the South, it was somebody from the South African FDA equivalent who wrote to Pfizer's chief medical officer on Zoloft saying that they had patients on 50 milligrams, which is a, which you'll hear doctors say that's pretty low. Um, and, or, you know, that's a pretty low kind of standard kind of basic. Well, these people, they had patients that were feeling they were standing outside their bodies looking in. And Pfizer wrote to the, um, the, uh, the equivalent of the FDA in South Africa said, what you're describing indeed happens on all SSRIs. We don't know why. And mm. I was like, uh, that might've been something nice to tell the doctor. So when Woody called, right. And so these are the things that, um, and also why I'm a big proponent of, and the importance of meeting lawsuits for discovery. So right. that the public can actually see documents. And then to Liam, and I'm just going to make a response. And then you guys, I mean, I could, I, this is my topic I love talking about, but you, um, you know, you talk about, um, well, Matthew doesn't know why he even like, I don't even know what this drug was doing. Cause it wasn't really, it doesn't seem like it's doing anything. Liam, you were quickly given, um, or you were given, um, for depression and anxiety. Well, I have since learned something that I didn't know, um, that the, one of the, um, screening tools or that they now use at least here in the States pretty much widely, it's the depression screen, depression anxiety screening form. It was actually right. created by Pfizer. Oh yeah, I have no doubt. I remember filling out either the yeah. exact one you're referring to or an yeah. equivalent. Yeah, and it's like in the last two weeks of have you felt sad? Have you felt less than worthy? Have you ate too much? You're like, yes, 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 but nothing about. Hey, Liam, what's going on in your life right now? Hey, Matthew. Okay, you've had a kind of a crappy like you know, whatever you said, childhood, you know, something or family, whatever happening at that time. Hey, Woody. Oh, wait, you just started a new job. Like, had you ever thought that it's pretty normal to wake up at three in the morning? And like, let's change our thinking around why this is happening or let's go do some exercise or have you thought about breathing? Have you done, you know, I mean, there's so many other things that should have been tried first after a quick you know, conversation or a screening tool, which is really a marketing tool, as we call it, um, to get more customers into the sales funnel. So anyways, I just had to make those comments after this. Yeah. Oh, and, that's, and that's a tremendous thing to emphasize because um, you, you're right. That was something that in 2013 I had filled out. And, you know, I, I went in 
I, I don't quite know why I went in wanting drugs. So I, I knew that was sort of what I was hoping would happen. Maybe because I, I it didn't occur to me that, for example, as you suggest, I was in first year university. I was just starting a, a huge, like the first major transition into adulthood. And as you say, it's kind of normal to feel a little freaked out about that. Yep. Um, uh, <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, Matthew, you were going to say you, but you think about it. You actually went thinking, oh, I want something to help me. Right. Yeah. And so the whole like everything, the whole system is set up like I would say fear, hope, all of that is, you know, the power of, um, you know, my whole background is advertising and marketing. So I know right. how. that's all you do is get people asking, coming in and asking. Now, I don't think Woody went in asking. I think he just wanted help. Now, I think it sounds like, Matthew, you probably went in, I don't, you know, not really necessarily expecting a pill, but you were probably expecting some help. Right? Yeah, I was absolutely, I was absolutely not expecting a pill. In fact, um, that's the only time in my life that I have uh, been on a drug that was supposed to be like a consistent fix type of medication. Um, you know, I, I, I hardly put, uh, I hardly take any drugs at all ever except for uh during pollen season i take uh, allegra d you know about 40 times <laughs> um you know dur during the the months where the pollen hits me and, and that and even that depends on where i live right um what city i'm living in at the time other than that uh i you know uh, you know ibuprofen once in a while but uh i do not like to put things in my body uh if i can uh if i can identify the problem at all um, gosh, and and maybe I had a couple of the right books on the shelf from the family library when I was growing up, but I, I remember um, you know reading through you know a couple of books where where it was just sort of obvious that so many of problems that people experience, water or exercise is the primary culprit. <laughs> so I, I even even during my podcast, you see, I stay religiously hydrated. Um, uh, you know, aside from that, you know, th those two things, they, they do fix uh, a lot of what makes people feel a little bit down, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of the time or not, not good enough energy level or, you know, change your focus. Um, you know, does weightlifting or cardio help with that? Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I, in general, I, I stay away from medicines unless I really, really know, you know, th that it's needed. Uh, I had a kidney stone one time and, uh, and had, um, and I'm not even going to name it, even though it's common. Um, uh, what, what's the very high-level painkiller that sometimes people get addicted to? Um, codeine? Yeah. Opioid? Opioids? Uh, uh, Tylenol-3? It, it was something that I had a pump for it. I had a pump for it for like two hours. Pump um, pain. You had one of those pump um, for... Is and that and the, this shows you how little I, I, I pay attention uh, yeah. to... to that sort of thing, but it's something that some people like worry that they can get addicted to. And part of the reason why I don't take it, it, as much medicine is, you know, I just don't want to have to worry about like uh, feeling a need for it later on. Right. So, um, you know, but other, you know, kidney, kidney stone, you need something. <laughs> yeah, and I was going to say, that is the one thing that I always tell people. And Morphine. That's um, right. Detaz yes. got it in chat. Sorry. Um, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say like, 
that's the one thing I always say, like, I'm not anti-medicine. I'm not anti-medication. I'm pro-information, pro-transparency. And also this idea of like, really, because we're not told, especially like with antidepressants, like if you go back to the initial clinical trials, they were never studied longer than six weeks, right? Now we have long-term. And so now you have, what has it done for people who've been on it for years, right? Or what is it doing? And so I think it's just that constant, we should be curious and even more important. Um, I mean, there's always a need, like your kidney stone. I remember I was, um, I had, uh, um, believe it or not, I was actually caused by Excedrin. I had a slow um, bleed, but I ended up having low um, hemoglobin and I ended up in the hospital and they're like, and the doctor who didn't know me said, I'm going to have to be on a pro pro uh, pro prohibitor like for Zantac or something, you know, like for um, 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 GERD or something that for esophageal um, gas. I'm like, well, I've not, I don't even have like what? Like I'm not even, he said, you're going to need to be on the rest of your life. And I go, the rest of my life? Like, what are you talking about? And then it turns out it was actually a medicine. Um, when I actually found, when we found the source, they asked, had I been on long-term had I been using Excedrin or Advil and, you know, even those regular, um, uh, not Advil, Tylenol, those two, um, but those regular over-the-counter medicines also have um, consequences. Non-steroidal painkillers have, yeah, or have, yeah, pe people should pay attention to those and study what they do. And, and, you know, everything that we change that we put in our body, we should think of as a variable and watch what mm -hmm. happens. You know, it's best, if at all possible, it's best to to go one variable at a time and understand the change of that variable. And I think that that's something that's something that we should be taught, uh, like in health class in childhood or, you know, I, I say health class or, or by our parents or or it should be general messaging on the television. Or um, your doctor. I love that. So I love that thinking. I've never heard it being called a variable. I mean, obviously it is, you know, one at a time, um, but I like thinking about it as a variable. Um, well, and you think about right now, especially with a lot of the, the mental health drugs or the anxiety or the, um, when you go in, um, a lot of times the doctors aren't recognizing side effects. Like, so when you're talking about the zap, I've, I know people who were trying to get off of, um, he was actually trying to get off of Paxil and there were big lawsuits for people trying to get off of Paxil and they had these electrical zaps and it was a filmmaker um, who actually I brought out to DC uh, to, you know, record all of the FDA um, advisory committees and, and whatnot. And he told me his story and, and, and his whole reason for doing his film was he would, he realized that when his baby was born and his mom died within a week of each other, he felt the same, nothing. He felt flat, right? Yeah. Flat. And so it made him start going, wait a minute. Why did I ever, why am I on this drug, like drug? And then he found out he got put on the drug 10 years earlier because he had a breakup with a girlfriend in college who's not his wife today. And so, um, you know, so then that started the curiosity of like trying to get off of it, but he couldn't get off of it because of those electrical zaps. Now, if he had gone to his doctor they, you know, a lot of times these doctors who are not very well versed in the side effects or to recognize as the side effect often will tell the people 
it's your disease getting worse and they'll put another drug and then they'll put another drug. And so your idea of a variable can soon be full of like polypharmacy, which is a big problem right now, especially in mental health. You know, I look at that woman who just, um, you know, unfortunately um, killed her kids out in Boston. She was on 13 start from the start of when she had post, um, you know, um, pregnancy after her baby, um, um, postpartum depression. They were um, from October until the end of the experience, I think, which was early in February. She was on 13 different drugs at not at all at the same time, but they were trying things as a guinea pig to try. And you realize that like we need to actually think very differently and be smart and wondering, is it a side effect that is causing this? Because also now, if you're layering drug after drug, you don't know what variable, and I'm going to start using it, and I'm going to Right, yeah. There's, there's over 8,000 different ways you could have a combination of a set of 13 drugs. That that's yeah. There's no way oh. you can distinguish the variables. Yeah. There's and no way you can distinguish the variables. That's what I mean, until you take everything out. But, you know, I really like that way of, and that's a great thing. We aren't taught that. Um, we're not taught that in school. We're not taught that, like, and yeah. you think about it, our system, our medical system, our doctors, they just, I mean, it seems like that's the easy tool. The, the, the high level fitness nutrition crowd, they they do talk about the one variable at a time. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the kind of person who like owns a, a CrossFit gym and, and does their own like personal, you know, people who are like, uh, you know, work for professional athletes and things like that, that crowd is talking about it, but essentially nobody else. And, mm -hmm. and fortunately they're, they're spreading it though. People are starting to hear that a little bit more, uh, which is good. Um, but you know, I, I, you, you said something I kind of want to add my voice to, you said, uh, you're not anti-medicine. And of course this conversation really has nothing to do with being anti-medicine, but it, it feels like we have to say it right. Um, I, I will say this though. Um, I feel like I have, uh, that I'm, sort of anti-medicalization of a large subset of the problems that people experience that, that people seek medical treatment for and that we we need to be having like more conversations about okay what is it about what's going on that relates to the environment or my interaction with the environment you know that is specific to me um, you know, the, the combination of the two, uh, I personally think that, that schools are designed very wrong, for instance. I also think that, um, you know, work environments are, are overly templated and that, uh, that we, we sort of become used to these things and accept them, whereas they have different effects on different personality types and different individual people. And, uh, you know, um, and I, I, I didn't realize that your, your husband's experience I uh, had, you know, was, was, you know, a new job, a new job experience, because that I, I related to that instantly when I heard it, um, because every work environment that I ever stepped into was very different from every other one. And when I think about that, I just wonder why is it that, that uh, there's not more communication about that, like about things like that in a workplace, like there's no one responsible for handling that so far as I can tell. <laughs> well, I, think, I was going to say one of the things that I'm seeing more and more is, you know, we're hearing a lot about mental health, right? 
we hear about mental health in workplaces. We hear about mental, but what it really tends to be is the it's it is the medicalization of everyday human experiences that is the that we actually need to step back. Do people are really that many? Like, what is you know they say with middle-aged women in the U.S. anyway, one in four, um, 40 year plus, like, are they really, do they really, is 25% of all women really needing antidepressants or is there other stuff going on in their life, right? And I think that that is a very good, like Wood's doctor, and again, he was a big athlete. He was running, he was training. He stopped training for a marathon because his body was um, wreaking havoc, but havoc with you know, how he was feeling on the drug. But during this whole time, he was still running three miles a day. And so he was tr doing everything right, but he just had the wrong variable that got put in his body, right? But if you really actually would have taken a step back, the doctor could have, and even we as people and this conversation of, um, is this the right thing? Or is it okay that, you know, okay, not everybody starts a new job. Like our personalities, I bet all three of us have totally different personalities that we got put on the quadrant and we did our, um, how we learn, how we engage with people. What are you, are you an extrovert and get filled up that way? Or are you an introvert? And like, you know, all of that impacts um, are just our everyday way of being. And there's this, you know, I still go back to, Right after Woody died, um, I went to my doctor, um, who I've gone to, you know, it's time for my physical, and, and she said, do you think you need anything? And I looked at her, and I said, and remember, it wasn't a known thing yet with the suicide, so I'm sure she thought I was making it all up, like, oh, sure, a drug can kill you. Um, but I said, no, I think this is what killed my husband. But then I said, aren't I supposed to hurt? My husband died. And she goes, but you don't need to. And I was like... What? Oh, that's brave new world. That's Soma. Yeah. Like you don't need to. Yeah, I do. I need to feel, I don't trust me that when I remember days after I wanted to rip my heart out, like literally claw it out. It's real. But that idea of, you know, that you don't need to, or you, I mean, I think I can say this now all these years later and it wasn't fun going through the darkness, but when you go through the dark, like that's when I had the highs and the lows. And I'm like, that is what life is. And that's yeah. the cool balance of what life is. Even, you know, in um, uh, talking about workplace and, you know, look at what's happening now with the pandemic and all these kids and people that had to, that worked from home or schools were closed, our lives were shut down. I mean, talk about just manufactured anxiety that's going to create i'd like to say not everybody likes when i say this customers for life but um it keeps you it's kind of the strategy of you know i look at my business advertising and marketing it's the cradle to grave strategy of keeping people in the market and patients are really customers you know and we have all these emotions uh you know we're, we're you know brilliant you know I, I, I almost said machines, but I don't want to to say it that way. But you know uh, what what it is our bodies and brains and minds, you know it, whatever it is evolved to be, whatever we are, is this this masterful process, and we process 
you know, everything that we experience into emotions. And so when an emotion is strong enough to rise to the surface and not even just be something in the subconscious or, or, you know, beneath the surface layer, um, you know, that, that we're supposed to pay attention to that. We're supposed to react to it. We're supposed to understand and, and we're supposed to build an understanding and then be able to communicate that to the rest of the community. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we are supposed to feel deep pains at times. Um, wow. You know, it, and I guess because I was not um, encouraged to think of, you know, constant medication growing up, which I'm glad that I wasn't, um, I, I hadn't even thought that through. Right. Um, and, and interesting, you know, I went home and did just a little bit of research before, you know, taking Zoloft and found out that so many people that I knew were on a drug and it had this false normalization effect in my mind. You know, I, I put my, you know, I, I didn't worry about doing it because it had been made normalized enough already. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a, like this sort of, it, this needs to be part of the conversation, which is that um, when a certain number of people begin participating in an experience that normalizes what is a change in the entire process of humanity. And we don't know what all the effects of that change are. We don't know if it has effects on people's political views or the way they resolve uh, conflict um, in ways that can ripple through an entire system and make other people, you know, uh, look past decisions that they're making as I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, Liam, I'm curious um, when you like listen to this and, um, and because I think Matthew, you're you're thinking of it, you know. I mean, obviously, it's been a long time, right? So you probably have had years of um, thinking, even the way you were just saying, like, "Oh, I've never really," because I don't know when you were in '99 if you were like, "Oh, what's the what is this impact will this have on a society when we normalize it?" Um, I'm not sure, and maybe you have always thought that way. I know I probably that feels very evolved now. It was gradual. Um, yeah. Okay. So then Liam, like now when you're, um, you know, when you're hearing all this and, um, I'm curious, like when you look back at when you got it as a freshman, right. And you're a create, I heard you said that you're a musician and you're a creator and you're, and I also have a lot of my, um, people I work with that are creatives, um, whether they're musicians or artists and in my business that, I think about them and we talk a lot about this, that when they were little, now they're, you know, like my age, but they said if a lot of the medications when they were little um, or if they had been around because they were creatives and in creatives in itself, when you're putting some of your own work out in the world, right. And, you know, there is like anxieties that come and sharing and, you know, all of, I mean, you know, so I'm curious what you um, what you think about like being the creative, and did that um, did that inspire or not inspire impact or like when you think back to your freshman year in college? Do you mean in the way that the the drug may have positively or negatively impacted the creative uh, um, experience? 
No, that's probably another. That is actually some because I've had people that said that. But you know, and you were 2013, you said? Yeah. That happened. So you think about it like you grew up probably, although you're in Vancouver, but but you probably still had like you don't have advertising like we do. Or do you? Did you see? Well, we do now for some reason over the last year. I've noticed an explosion in the kind of direct pharmaceutical advertising that I think you're talking about, but you're, yeah. you're correct. Back then we did not have it. So what do you think? Like when you said you kind of, or you went in, did you grow up that way? Did you have, um, did you hear mental health conversations? Did you hear, like, was there something that you, feel like when you went to the doctor that you were like seeking something or was it just like, oh my God, I'm like, I need something to like help, help me. Um, mm. It's, you know, that's probably something I'm going to have to sit with and, and try to remember first of all. Um, but also just try, like, see if I can wrap my head around, around that. I'm not, I'm not totally sure. I think, um, you know, it's interesting. The normalization. I don't think I knew anybody on antidepressants when I was growing up. So so it's interesting hearing Matthew kind of characterize it as he did, which I think is very true. But I didn't have that. So so it actually was like I was the odd one out for going that path. Um, I think part of it. So just to give an example of the kind of thing that I was feeling at the time and the, and the kind of thing that led me to pursuing this. So like, uh, so I was, I was trying to get into business school because I thought that would be the best way to become a musician, ironically enough, because I thought if I could go through it the business way, there'd be a more viable career path, uh, which wound up being totally backwards. But I was dealing with that contradiction in my head and, and trying to kind of, you know, it's always hard starting a career um but then I, I i it just wasn't working out like it was not consistent with with how i felt on the inside what i wanted to be doing the classes i was having to go to this or that so you know i would get off the bus there's one incident in particular i just i got off the bus walked about 30 feet and then hit an invisible wall um and yes. physically could not continue um and uh that was a it 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 felt to me consistent with what i had heard or in the bit of research i did things like that were described as being depression or symptoms of you know your own brain is is stopping you from doing something now fast forward i understand it's probably because i i was trying something and it wasn't working so i should have tried something else which i wound up doing but i interpreted that as i have a psychological issue like I'm, I'm broken somehow. Um, and I think there were probably other things around me that, uh, and, and maybe, maybe things people had said, or maybe attitudes of various people in my life that might've supported the notion that I was broken in some way, even if that was not the intention of those people. Um, so that's probably just what funneled me in that direction. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I love that you were thinking about it because that's exactly when I, you know, that filmmaker that I was telling you about who was doing that documentary, he actually had to sit and think, why did I ever go on it in the first place? And then he realized, and then it was like, and then, you know, we have human emotions like, oh my God, 
the shame of like, I went on it because I had a broken up relationship with a girlfriend that from high school or, you know, college. I mean, yeah. so it's like, but I always say, and I asked my doctor and she always likes when I, I go, do you ever tell people to look in the mirror? And, and I said, um, and she goes, what do you mean? And I go, you know, the mirror test of like looking in the mirror of your soul doesn't lie. So I feel like there's so much of that, that like, it's just us as people and being curious about something yeah. as opposed to, you know, the lie that we've been told that has come through, I mean, through the advertising is that we have a chemical imbalance. Right. And that is now being um, coming out that we do not. That is a lie that has been told from um, the beginning of the marketers that you may. And if you start looking at all the ads and I see you have the Zoloft, one of my favorite ones, which is like, oh, you, you know, the so you're going to a party and you feel like you're alone and you may have a chemical imbalance. You got to look at the copy. But that is what was told to society so that if. And so I don't, I mean, first of all, you know, I love how honest you are. And also the fact that like, I don't know, maybe people like, you know, that's what we were told. And so you can't blame, I mean, I don't blame anybody that's been told something, you know, over and over because that's what even our, you know, even like if you listen to mental health um, and it's a huge business, the behavioral um, um, sector of mental health, it's, you know, you've got pharma and you got the schools, but behavioral health is also a big business. And so if you right. listen to a lot of that, um, the words around it, it's chemical imbalance. It's supporting a lot of this, which is going to then do the medicalization model. And for sure, there are people that will need, um, but not, you know, everybody, but especially when you look at those ads. And I'll remember that was out. There was like one that was like, does your, do you get nervous asking your boss for a raise? Or I was like, and you might have social anxiety disorder. And it was like the most ridiculous lifestyle. <laughs> then there was another, like on Paxil, it would say, hi, I'm anxious. Um, you, you know, Matthews might say, hi, I'm shy. And yours might say, hi, I'm um, depressed. And then as soon as you take a Paxil, it would say, hi, I'm Liam. Hi, I'm Matthew. Hi. I'm uh. and, you, and that sent so many subliminal messages that, we as a society have just grown up and assumed. And then, you know, I you're not even you until you take the drug. Yeah. It's like this really, um, and I'll never forget even well before Woody died. Um, I had so that's dehumanizing. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's one of the worst ones I've ever. Oh, I'll show heard, you that. actually. You find that Paxil it's Paxil. Hi, I'm shy. Hi, I'm depressed. Hi, I'm hey, that, that, that's literally dehumanizing. Yeah, it's like you're not you until after you've taken yeah. medicine. Yeah, I and mean, that's where that's why when you look at how we grew, you know, that whole market came to be. And you know, I look back at before Wood died, I had helped start an organization called Free Arts. Um and we worked with the kids that have been abused, neglected, at risk. And it was using the power of art with the and volunteers with the kids. And um, we were working with this group of teenagers, or like not teenagers, they were seven to 12 years old, and they had all been removed from the home and they were living in a group home. So their staff person said, Hey, kids, you want to show the volunteers where you live? And they're like, Yay. Well, I remember they walk into the hall, you know, it's like a locked dorm room. 
Um, and each kid, it was about eight o'clock at night, each kid picked up a cup of medicine pills. And I remember like, and I remember thinking, oh my God, are they all like sick, like strep throat? Cause that's what I thought. Cause I knew nothing about this avenue. And she said, oh no, that's just their behavior medicine. I'm like, their behavior hey. medicine. Yeah. And I was like, these kids are like foster kids that had lived, you know, had been removed, had seen horrible things in their life, live in a place you know, one of, this was at one of the Catholic charity places. They're not broken. And so just that whole idea that we've come to believe that that will be, you know, like what what you need is a, a pill to make you normal. And like, what if it's just normal? Like, it's not normal that you saw what you did, but maybe we could, you know, maybe I always tell those kids, I'm like, you guys are my heroes. Like, you've if you've seen things that most people have never seen, you could be a thriver and like, you know, but to automatically just medicate somebody because they're like acting out. Well, of course they're acting out. They're seven years old and they're living not at their house, which is not normal, you know? So anyways, yeah, there you go. I mean, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious because, um, I, I will say, uh, it would be really easy and convenient for me to just say, you know, it was a mistake to go on Zoloft. Uh, I see that now. It's very clear. And it's true. However, I, I did experience what I what I feel like what what at the time and um, what I still can't quite reconcile. But I, I experienced a benefit of some kind. Mm -hmm. What what that is. Uh, I, can't, I can't. That's where I'm more skeptical. Where did that benefit come from? Was it the drug or was it the decision? Was it the having taken an action to help myself? And could that action have been something healthier? But um, just to 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 explain like this, this notion of a chemical imbalance that let's let's dive into that in a second, because there's been some, as you allude to, recent kind of revelations around that notion. But I did go from feeling as though, for example, everyone in a room was only putting up with me. That like, that's a very visceral feeling that I still kind of, I can tap into and I don't believe it anymore, but I, but it really guided my existence before a feeling as though everybody, I'm a burden on everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where you start to get suicidal thoughts when you feel like it'd be easier if you're not in the room anymore. And we hear that. That's a, a, a classic story. It, you know, I, it'd be better off for other people if I weren't here. So that whole sense of, of feeling did make less sense after I started taking sertraline. Uh, so, so I don't know how to reconcile that in my own life. Like I, I, I'm curious. I maybe, maybe this is something that I, um, can explore further as to so what was it actually that allowed me to not be stuck in that very scary you know area of thought if it's not a given that it was the sertraline especially because now i remember a, maybe six months ago or a year there was this big you know big headlines about new studies show that ssris don't actually regulate uh was it they don't actually regulate the uptake of, of uh, the reuptake of serotonin in the way that they thought or is it that serotonin doesn't play a role in depression in the way that they thought are you familiar with that whole uh new yeah, study it was the um the role that the drugs play in it but 
Yeah. So it'd be interesting to, cause that is, you know, that was one of the things, you know, I look back at some of the documents. Um, I mean, the power, I don't know, cause you know, clearly for some people there is a chemical um, reaction hmm. that does something right. So it could have been, or is it the placebo, the power of yeah. the placebo of, you know, you think about, they've had a bunch of studies, right. That, you know, when you do and take action, like I'm getting better, I think I'm getting better. I think I'm getting better. Like, I don't know. I mean, clearly, you, you know, you feel like you are and you're like you said, you felt different. You felt different. So but, you know, I know there are people that it that's what I'm saying. I know there are people that it does have a chemical type impact um, on them. Uh, but it's worth, you know, it's worth discovering um, or even just asking the questions. But I always say, even for anybody who even is considering going off, you, you know, you got to be really careful um, yeah. and know that if you do get things that don't seem normal, like the brain zaps, it may not be you. It might be your body, you know, like um, just so that you don't just, cut, I mean, although I've heard people cut cold turkey, but I know it can be pretty brutal. Um, but, you know, it was hard when I look at, some of the documents and then I look at just what's happening in the world and like come like just who's doing the studies in the business who's doing them to get the mar drugs on the market who's like it's a it, when I look at one of the things originally Germany did not um, approve um, Prozac for two reasons risk of um, suicide and lack of efficacy and there are documents that it was during the AIDS crisis and the FDA said, unless they knew they were going to come under um, attack years from now for not being as demanding as they should be for establishing the efficacy of antidepressant products. And that was after all the pressure of the AIDS and how the FDA took a lot of heat for taking too long. And I can send you these um, documents just so you can put them up since I'm referencing them. That'd be awesome. Those came, um, those came out. And when you saw them, you're like, what? You know, and then I, I, you know, again, my whole thing is about education and for sure not, it would never like, you know, it's individual. It's just having the information. So then you can make the best decision possible for yourself. So, hey, Liam, can, can I offer um, a, a perspective, you know, on that? Um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, uh, you know, or one of the reasons that we started working together was um, you had you had worked well independently. I mean, even with very little introduction or I mean, when we started Operation Uplift, um, you were pouring through, you know, you know, scores of pages of notes, each page containing 30 links, right? Um, it, it, you, you have a, an independence of mind. And, and I think that, um, that there's something about the way the world, the modern world is sort of over-constructed in a way that conflicts with independence of mind. Yeah. And, uh, and this made me think of the serenity prayer and, uh, you know, there are different versions of this, but, you know, uh, one of the common ones, God, give me the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, 
courage to change the things which should be changed and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. And it, 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 some of that can calm us from not worrying too hard about, you know, I don't have to fix the entire world. Right. And, and that's true. That's not each of our responsibilities to make everything in the world uh, not wrong by some definition of wrong. Um, <clears throat> but this, this whole, like uh, the, the modern world is difficult to escape. Right. But, you know, you go to school and you have some sense when you're 18 years old that you're supposed to be there. What is supposed to mean? Well, you're supposed to be doing the things that are most productive toward, you know, uh, putting pushing you toward your pursuits. Right. Some some sort of interactive process with you. Well, if that process interaction with you isn't what you need. Right. If, if, if it wasn't tailored to you well enough, if it wasn't uh, if you weren't able to find the right pieces and build your own clothes out of it, then you might feel like there's something wrong. And when, when you take that and 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 it's hard for us to say, well, the system is wrong because it's it's, it's supposed to. That's the thing that can't be changed. Right. It, each one of us is like it really does feel like. You would you either you spend a lifetime battling it, and we do each have those missions, or you don't, and and you can't change it, right? Um, school is one of those things that that is you know there are the most rules, and so it is the most difficult to to make it conform, and it may be that what a drug does is it cuts off your action potential. Kind of like the limit experiment where, you know, you would rise to a point where you would take action and, but that rising to that point, that's the emotion. And, and if it cuts off that emotion, then in a sense, you could say it did solve your depression, but what it solved was you processing what the problem is. Hmm. And, and I, I don't know if that's exactly right. But that's the way I put it together, you know, listening to it and thinking it through. And, and, and maybe that's partially because I, I, you know, was a school builder and, you know, spent so much time in educational tech and thinking about the ways people interacted with, uh, with school systems, which uh, almost, well, much of which seems wrong to me, much of which seems um, not particularly human at times. But that so many people come to accept that, you know, you being in those situations and not I don't know, um, learning the dance that most of the people around you learned. I, and I think that that's a lot of what it is. I, I think especially college is very much a um, learn to play a narcissistic role type of environment. Not that everyone falls into that, but a lot of people do. That becomes normalcy. I'm, you know, and if I'm not feeling normal, I'm going to, I'm going to build this mask that says that I am because that's the mask that I'm being trained to wear in the jobs that come next. Well, that model uh, fits perfectly looking back. Um, like when I, when I look at uh, what has happened rather explosively with COVID um, on the, on the side of the, the people and the decision-making and the culture and the, the society um, of it, uh, everything you just said makes total sense. And it, it explains, it, it provides an explanation for how I felt with that system then and how I've wound up, you know, interacting with it now. 
So I think that 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 is very plausible to me. Um, but maybe this is a good transition point to maybe try to identify like to to help try to make sense of what's going on now because when i hear you speak kim and, and the interactions that um that you've had with the system um there's a lot of familiarity between you know aside from the fact that pfizer is a common company you know that superficial aspect aside the 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 system you describe having interacted with then and continue to interact with now, like it feels very much like something we've all watched in real time or learned about in real time during the 2020 to 2023 era where there are drugs and therapeutics of various kinds that um, to be overly diplomatic are tremendously questionable, uh, have not yet demonstrated that they are gonna be safe or even do what they're supposed to be doing. And that doesn't just apply to things that are being injected into arms. You know, there's there's oral uh, drugs being approved that also seem to, again, at least be questionable um, for things related to COVID. So I'm, I'm curious, to me, it's felt like this whole new thing. And of course, looking back, turns out it's been something that is uh, going on for a number of decades, problematic regulatory decision making. But what's your perspective on regulation of these drugs uh, in the COVID era? Has it has it been the same thing for decades and decades or is something even more different now? Um, what, what's your perspective? Well, first of all, I would say that COVID has shined a light into what has been, and I think it's awoken, you know, people have waked up a little bit, you know, because we've been told things are safe and, you know, completely, um, I mean, I think when I look back when COVID first started and it was like um, the, even just the injections, right? Vaccines, which I had never really done any work on before, but I heard the word, oh, um, um, warp speed, warp speed. Right. So that was like, whoa, okay. Um, and then I started watching all the marketing and everybody coming out that were celebrities and basically influencers that were telling us that it, it was completely safe and effective. I'm like, well, that seems weird. Um, and then we lost um, the placebo group um with the vaccines after you know the initial they gave the opportunity that if you were in the clinical trial you could get the um the injection or not and so we basically lost our long-term placebo group which is like kind of the hallmark of any clinical trial you need to have a the placebo group um and not make the real world so i think there um but i would say the the fail, you know, the lack um, lack of standards. Um, safety has always an after um, is always an after effect. You know, like oh, they assume that you know we'll catch safety once it's on the market. It almost seems like the function is to get the drug on the market, and regulatory is part of the drug company business model. You have to have that. But, um, and safety is always kind of an after. So I think that's been going on. But my experience of sitting on the FDA advisory panel, a lot of the drugs that are coming before my committee that have nothing to do with COVID, um, but, you know, are like a Parkinson's psychosis drug or um, 
That was one. I've had some opioid abuse disorder drugs. They're all in the psychotropic area. They're all using, and the big model that they're all using is something called like fast tracking, breakthrough therapy designation. And it's idea that it there's an unmet need. This idea of unmet need means that there aren't any approved, officially approved drugs on the market. So they're able to do something faster. You know, maybe it's only one clinical trial instead of the double, you know, the, um, the gold standard of two replicated, you know, replicated um, studies. So that I think has been going on. Um, and then the EUA of the COVID um, under this emergency, it just, you know, all um, in my mind, all wheels came off the car on that one because, you know, you didn't, nobody could be responsible if you got hurt. I'm like, what? Like, I know these companies, these are not companies that have, that I would just blindly give them complete legal immunity because once you do that, like, what's the, what's the incentive to do and not take, not that I think, I don't even want to go that they would do evil, right. but like, what's the incentive when you know you're not going to be responsible for any harms? Like, are there, are there, I mean, of course we've heard a lot of different things, but I'm just going to, you know, um, but are there um, shortcuts that were taken? Are there things that people did or didn't do? You know, all of that has to be put into um, when, you know, into context or at least into question when you have like the EUA, but even breakthrough, like the new Alzheimer's drugs that are out right now, you know, um, the same thing, like they're using, the big thing is using um, all these other, um, you know, endpoints, surrogate endpoints that aren't necessarily, or even are they patient centered and mean anything to the patient, but they get approved and it's, and then the whole, train takes off, you know, from the station. So, yeah, I think, um, I think the good part is uh, hopefully people are paying attention. Hopefully, you know, the bummer part is, you know, this idea of like mandate, I just don't understand that just doesn't ever make sense to me Yeah. since one, no product is ever. Now we're starting to hear people say it, but we should have been questioning it and pushing it as a society when it came out. Since when has any product ever been um one size fits all all of us like here are three different stories on the experience of just one drug so that are very very different and very different categorically different yeah very different and so you look at that when well now all of a sudden this thing that's brand new is completely one size fits all that just and so hopefully that's my um kind of uh wish and you know kind of marching orders for people to actually think twice before ever getting ourselves into this mess again you used the phrase unmet need to describe the uh the excuse for jumping past a lot of rational safety testing decisions analysis um it reminds me of uh of you know emergency measures um, you know, if, if the government can do anything at once when there's an emergency, well, maybe you should expect some people in the government to think maybe I'll create an emergency so that I can do whatever I want it. You know, once you have that, you know, um, uh, 
bypassing of responsibility, if that's the trigger, then somebody is going to game the definition. Uh, and, and it's not well-defined. It's vague to begin with, unmet need, right? And it, it is, it's ready for gaming from the very start. Unmet need is just, you could swap that for uh, a product we haven't yet introduced. Yeah. I mean, honestly, unmet need, almost every one of my new, my um, drugs that I've been um, looking at, reviewing, has all come under unmet need. And it would be like Parkinson's psychosis. Well, Parkinson's psychosis is really, um, is the drugs, the C-DOPA drugs that they've been using to help treat Parkinson's can cause this post, uh, but it's actually, you know, a lot of it's, and so then they treat it with this antipsychotic. But, you know, I, I remember saying at that committee, like, why don't we go upstream and maybe we need to get better drugs that don't cause some of the side effects, right? And um, so that was one where it was an unmet need, but it was really being caused by the side effect of another, the drugs that they use to treat. So there wasn't anything on the market. So you can keep, that is the way a lot of these things. And then um, even looking at right now, the big buzzword, um, I mean, and to Matthew's point, like the emergency, like anything like that, if there is somebody who can game the system or make money off the system or um, there will always be because not saying that everybody's like that, but well, there all, there will always be somebody just looking, you know, what we've seen. Um, but now the big ones, um, and I always tell people, go listen to what Wall Street has to say, like where they think the new driver is going to be. And this is the first year that um, we've had the JP Morgan healthcare conference virtual, you know, back in San Francisco. And the analyst said the two big um, uh, drugs that we're going to see are the treatments, um, obesity and um, Alzheimer. So oh. start watching what you're seeing all, you just look at mainstream media now, like just look at your today shows, look at things that have nothing to do with like news. They're all doing stories on um, obesity. And obesity is going to be the next unmet need. But yet it's those, um, JP Morgan said it is the, um, the two categories where we're going to have outrageous like profits from a financial standpoint. So it's not because we had everybody stay home. It's because they're not taking this drug yet. Yes. <laughs> and we've created, like, we've created this unmet. I mean, like, you know, we haven't had, um, I mean, I say that, like, we've created this unmet need of obesity. So yeah, this one. That's a very interesting visual they have there. Yep. That's yeah, there, you could you can read in a lot to this visual. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the, the technological um, construction of something that is actually natural and ubiquitous. Yep. It looks like <laughs> you would find it in your body. <laughs> well, and and uh oh man. I, oh, and another just before we move on from the visual, just another thing. There's this, what what is it when it's six? Uh, it, the 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 design, the ge a geometric shape. Uh, is that a? Uh, it's not a pentagon. Is it a hexagon? When it's six sides. Oh yeah, hexagon. Yeah. 
if you look like I, I, I am shocked by how often and I don't know what it means, but this this is a very common shape uh, in a lot of uh, contexts. Uh, um, whenever there's an opportunity for a visualization, um, it's the greatest number of sides of a regular polygon that you can tile a surface completely with. It's a, ah. it's a, it's a, 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 I can't remember what the word is, but uh, it's a type of tessellation, you know, just with one regular polygon. And there's four of them, triangles, squares, and hexagons. But hexagons look the most, you know, mystically technical. That's right. That's right. I think that's what it is. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and it's also it's also the honeycomb shape, right? Um, yeah, it, it's it's what it is structurally. You know, it, it's it is what it is for a reason. It's a strong shape. Um, I, and I will say another, and I, and I think there's a whole world. Like I'm not saying just because I found one thing, I then understand the whole thing. But but on the note of, you know, we have these problems that have that have tr like demonstrably been caused, at least in large part, in the current sense, by the last couple of years, by actions taken by regulators, by government agencies, uh, in partnership with pharmaceutical interests that so they've led to these health issues well what i'm starting to find is uh, a lot of biotech companies whose main focus is using the same platforms as the current gene-based uh, vaccine products to resolve a lot of known adverse events from this first round of gene-based therapeutics and um, it's it's kind of alarming. And and if you just if you take if you look at it on a on a surface level, it looks really suspicious. And in the end, I think what it is, it's it's less of a, you know, smoking gun of a conspiracy, perhaps more of just yet another example of what you described. You know, the 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 problem uh the unmet need so you bring in the thing which then causes another unmet need so you bring in the thing and it can all be explained by incentives created by the system as it is it could be a conspiracy but it's it could also just as easily be this is how the system is set up and this is the result and it's not good it's not it's helping a business model. i mean like it just it has become a business model right like right. you can you know um and that's where I think, again, I hope that after these last couple of years that people really take a step, the average person takes a step back and asks these questions, listens to like conversations like this, where we're talking about things that are just putting in a different context that we're just having a conversation, right? Mm. Um, that we can ask the questions and not be forced. And I think the idea of forced is um a very slippery slope that we've already seen what has happened um to all my like i work you know i uh, my work um i always woody matters is that i represent the voice who of those who live every day with the consequences of a failed drug safety system and so i look and i feel like i'm advocating right now to make sure that the voice of the vax injured the covid vax injured and even some of the other treatments that, you know, they have been considered collateral damage, acceptable collateral damage. And I look at it and say, we're not anecdotes. We matter. These are real people's lives. It matters. 
And so that is why I will continue to be the voice for people um, because I'm in these places because I know what it means to live. Um, and Woody was considered an acceptable collateral damage. Same with you, um, Matthew, really. Like, you know, the um, zaps, anybody who's had any kind of things, you know, so. And you know what? In the end, and, and, and I, I want to say our friend Mark Kulag, who streams as Houstonic Live, he, he, he's, he's really emphasizing in his discussions that w th there are conversations to be had about the safety and lack of safety of pharmaceutical products. And that's important. But what's most important is advocating for the ability for each person, as you say, to make their own informed choice. And there are pieces that go into that. But it's not even necessarily just about saying you shouldn't take this because it's dangerous. It, that itself is sort of potentially problematic. It's this person is a completely different person than this person. They all deserve the same amount of complete information to then make the decision that is the most informed and seems to be the best for them. Because in the end, that's in, in the end, we are free human beings who are going to make mistakes sometimes, but it's not up for any one person or any agency to dictate which correct decisions or which mistakes are acceptable. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. Tell me if you tell me if you disagree. No, I was going to say 100 percent agree with what you said. I again, I look at just the three of us. Like, I don't care. Like at the end of the, like, it's just about having information. You get information. You can decide if it makes sense for you based on, you know, like even with all of the things that we've learned about natural immunity and right. this last couple of months, like um, uh, natural immunity. And now we're finding that, oh, wait, it is actually better than, you know, um, the, the shot was. Now, if you wanted to take the shot and you were at the high risk, like, I mean, you should have that right too. Like, I don't yeah. think we should be, like that's just my thing i've always had it's not about one way or the other it's about information give us the information give us and let us have the real like right now i feel like all the information happens to be it's not level set we're being told and so this is what we're being told but and here's us up up here we need to like bring it so it's balanced right and that's what i would love to see you know i look at even just some of the stuff that comes on some of the drugs that we look at, even the antidepressant was like one of the ahas that I had back in when I went out to DC. Cause truthfully, I didn't like politics. I don't like any of that stuff. I did not live that world. Um, but I remember there are people that knew all this information and the FDA would only hire um, the like people that they had relationships that all the academic institutions had um, big, you know, contracts with like Pfizer and the companies but then there were these independents that had different information that saw this because they're in the practice and they were not given um, they were not given a platform at the FDA hearings. They were given three minutes like I was to tell Woody's story. Like and so I have seen that now even like even worse is that a lot of the, the debate is not we're not able to have a debate. Yeah. or the conversation or i saw we couldn't even ask the question if like and so we in order for us i don't care again whatever you want to do but we should be able to have the freedom 
and the platforms available to us so that we as a society can ask questions and not be told one-sided what it is. So listening to all this, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of imagining like, what is the, what is the root of the problem? You know, it, it, it seems like most people who, I think most reasonable people, if they detach themselves from all of this and go through all of this would say, okay, there's a problem. I think, I think a lot of people don't have the information or can't get detached. You know, a lot of people are so busy, especially during their most you know, productive life years, uh, career wise and, and otherwise family wise. And, um, you know, don't, don't take the time to detach themselves to take in all this information, but what, what drives all of this, what drives the system to push like it does. And one of the things that I've come to the conclusion to over the past three years is that, um, you know, while, while it is that we as individuals, meaning the three of us have difficulty changing the system, maybe we can make an impact, but, uh, it reminds me of the forces but it, 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 it feels like that there are a few very powerful people who project what they want into the system and then it operates for them. Whatever excuses need to be made, whatever corners need to be cut, whatever um, emergencies need to be created. And I'm wondering, you know, what is the characterization of the motivations of those people who do have the power? And it reminds me of, um, the very first emperor of China. And this is uh, 200, you know, 221 BC. Uh, uh, the Qin Dynasty begins when uh, Qin Shi Huang uh, wins the War of the Seven States and uh, declares himself emperor of China. He's a you know strong, competent ruler in the sense of keeping a, a nation together. But uh, after eleven years, um, Taoist magicians sent him on kind of a wild goose chase. They said, uh, oh, well, there's this one thing that, that you could attain that you haven't already attained, and that's immortality. And there, there happens to be this bottle containing an elixir of immortality, but we hid it out in the ocean on this island that's really dangerous to get to. So you're going to have to go on this quest to get it. So, of course, he uproots his life. You know, takes his, uh, his, you know, his consort with him, goes on this quest and dies doing it. But, you know, the moment, the moment the bait of immortality is in the hands of people who only want more and can't imagine that they, um, that they could be examining an illusion. And then the game becomes, um, is somebody creating the illusion? Are, are the, the people who, who say, oh, personalized medicine is going to allow us to solve every problem. And, people, and, and there are literally articles right now in tech news and biotech news that say things like seven years from now. I saw one of these just, la just in the last few days. Seven years from now, um, we're going to achieve immortality. And nonsense like this. Um, the some of the anti-aging people, uh, some of the diagrams that they have are total nonsense and people soak it up and cheer for it. And I think it's because um, there's a certain group of people who like 
Chin Shi Huang just want more and that the more that they can imagine that the, the infinity button, right? The immortality button, they see it and they don't recognize it as an illusion and they don't recognize it as something that conflicts with all of the rest of life. And so they're on this quest and they're going to be on this quest until somebody helps them figure it out. Somebody says, Hey, all these people are just fooling you. They have, they have careers on the line. They're making good money fooling you, but they're fooling you. And, you know, it, it feels like that, that there's a source there. There's the source of the problem is this quest for immortality amongst just, just a few powerful people. Cause it fits, it fits the drive for power. Yeah. Or to keep us living forever or control people's thoughts or, you know, getting playing in my mind, playing God which isn't their role. So um, that's kind of, yeah, I, I love, I love the, the whole, what you just said. I like the thought of thinking about it. Cause where's it coming from? Why? It, it, it does just, it feels intuitively right. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that, um, you know, people who seek power have these motivations and they want to find the infinity button and we, in modern society, there's so much that's so cool. We have all these whizzy contraptions and flying chariots and, you know, cars that, that take us anywhere we want to go and um, submarines, I mean, it, just spacecraft, you know, whatever it is that we have, it, it's pretty amazing. And, and it's so much amazing that, that you could invent a lot of mythology around it. Okay. Well, on that note, um, I, I, this has been a, a very fast hour and a half from my perspective. Um, thank you so much, Kim, for giving us so much of your time. You've been very generous. Um, it's it been a, a tremendous number of enlightening moments for me. I've got a whole bunch of tabs pulled up of things to look into further. Um, so thank you so much. Um, I want to know, is there anything you want to leave the audience with? Any calls to action? What can people do to help either continue their own learning or to continue in uh, taking action themselves? Well, first of all, it's been a really fun, um, the time flew, I'm like an hour and a half, really? Um, so anyways, thanks for, and I love that we can go a lot of different conversations because I think really right there is um, a key that we just showed that we just had conversation, right? So this idea of the power of conversation and not being afraid to have conversations with people that don't necessarily think like you and maybe actually bring an idea that makes you be willing to sit with something that makes you uncomfortable. Yes. That's where growth happens is when we're willing to be uncomfortable or question, why do we believe something um, to be so? So that is just more of a general um, philosophy of be willing to try something on and be uncomfortable. Then in terms of medicines, I would say, um, just always stop, pause, ask questions, research before action. Um, you know, one size fits all does not. And if we ever get in that situation, really question it because as if this, uh, oh, that was my watch. Um, but if this conversation of the three of us um, really showed one, which I love that it was one drug, the same drug and three different situations. Imagine that had been, um, imagine that had been mandated to all of them, to all of us that you have to take that. 
and you had to stay on it, you know? So I love this, this conversation. So thanks for creating this platform and you guys are great. I love how you guys think. Well, thank you for being the educator. Wow. Thanks. Okay. And last, uh, lastly, everyone, uh, I've put various links uh, to uh, at the beginning Kim's website um, in the chat and also um, WoodyMatters.com. I have that right, right? Yep. Okay, perfect. You can also get to it on KimWitzak.com as well. Fantastic. And um, I'll make sure that those links are in the description of all the videos as I upload them to the various platforms. So thank you again, Kim. And um, we look forward to talking with you again very soon, I hope. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Okay, Matthew, any final thoughts before we uh, wrap her up for the day? Uh, one thought I had is, is uh, you should probably go back and cut out a couple of two or three minute clips because this was a really good conversation and it's an important conversation for a lot of people. And it's also one that may just, um, I, I think people need to retrain themselves into seeking out the educators like Kim, uh, the accidental activists who had some sort of an experience that made them put them whole self, their whole selves into into some uh into some mission uh there are you know there's a hundred thousand of these missions and and kim is one of those people who who has put the information you know, you know helped bring the information to light but you have to go find it right you have to go find it and uh, and you know uh pe people should know that that uh those those handles are out there to climb the wall so yeah and and i just want to end with you know the that we talked about how being human involves necessarily and sort of beautifully not only the highs but the lows and kim having lost woody uh having lost someone uh in in a way that surely hurts uh in in a way that she, she does a very good job of 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 being positive uh despite having such a tremendous loss um I think Kim is a, a fantastic example of how you can take and, and perhaps how people in general are called to take something like that and turn it into uh, something good. Yeah, she processed it in a productive way and it can help everyone. And, and in so doing, uh, speaking of immortality, Woody lives on. The other irony. <laughs> um, you don't you don't need your uh, permanent telomere extensions or whatever therapy we're looking at uh, to to live forever. So, okay, uh, and I will do that. I'll cut out some clips and um, we'll see if we can get them even further than this hour and a half conversation. Um, well, thank you so much, everybody. There's been tremendous chat and, and frankly, a lot of support, uh, a lot of supportive messages um, for for Kim and thanks for Kim um, and for really nice messages uh, to Matthew and I about our situations as well. So just want to acknowledge that. Thank you. Uh, very, very kind. Um, and um, I think Kim really summed up well uh, what we're trying to do here with Rounding the Earth, the ability to have a conversation, to sit down with someone you don't necessarily agree with. In fact, perhaps seeking out conversations where you're going to be uncomfortable and consider, try on something that uh, is going to make you uncomfortable and um, allow yourself to, to wonder if you have something else you can add to your quiver uh, to expand your understanding of the world. So thank you all so much. Um, and we will, uh, of course, be back tomorrow on roundingtheearth.locals.com for our weekly supporters exclusive live stream where we're going to talk about something fun. What that is, only 
only the universe knows. Uh, anyway, okay, thanks so much. We'll see you later. Mm -hmm.